Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Martin Luther King. In this hour, we wanted to talk about the way the media makes over Martin. And this comes from a column I had written in 2013, and here's how it begins. And you'll be hearing a lot from Martin, because I quote him intensely and extensively and compare and contrast His speeches were those of Malcolm X. Listen carefully to all the celebrations of Martin Luther King this week. Listen very carefully. There is one aspect of King's life that you won't hear much about, no matter how hard you try. His devotion to his faith, his devotion to his God, his devotion to Jesus Christ. Listen carefully and you'll hear endless mentions of Dr. Martin Luther King, but little if any mention of the Reverend Martin Luther King. Listen carefully to all of the video and audio clips, and you'll hear some of the greatest rhetoric and some of the most passionate speeches of the 20th century. The sound bites and clips will stir your soul, but you won't hear the references to God that so often filled his speeches, nor will you hear references to the book that inspired him, the Bible. You won't hear references to God because the secular, secular media dislikes the Bible so much and public affirmations of a belief in Christ, that they do everything in their power to redact them. The Reverend Martin Luther King loved the Bible so much that he got an undergraduate degree in Bible studies. At modern universities, they call it a divinity degree. His Ph.D. was in theology. To King, the Bible wasn't some strange old book that didn't have relevance in modern times. It was God's Word. It was a book that was and always will be, relevant because it expresses eternal principles and eternal truths. And you know how much the media hates talking about ideas like eternity, or principle, or that really awful word, truth. In a version of his famous A Knock at Midnight speech, which you are unlikely to hear in the media this week, you're going to hear it here. King started with a quote from one of his great speeches from Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. But a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Listen to his tenor and tone. This sounds more like a sermon you'd get on a Sunday. And it was. Why start a speech about the problems of the 20th century with a parable from an ancient text? Well, Reverend King explains why. Now, this is a parable dealing with the power of persistent prayer. And as I look at this parable, I see within it a basic outline and a basic guide 
in dealing with many of the problems that we confront in our nation and in the world today and the role of the church. Now the first thing that we notice in this parable is that it is midnight. It is also midnight in our world today. And we are experiencing a darkness so deep that we can hardly see which way to turn. It's midnight. He goes on then in this speech to talk about the limits of psychology to help us in this struggle at midnight. People are more worried, more frustrated, more bewildered today than at any period of human history. What are the popular books of the bestsellers in religion today? They are books entitled Peace of Mind, Peace of Soul, and who are the popular preachers? They are so often preachers who would preach nice little soothing sermons on how to be happy, how to relax, how to keep your blood pressure down. And so we have retranslated the gospel to read, go ye into all the world and keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. All of this is indicative of the fact that it is midnight in the psychological order. It is midnight in the psychological order, and King believes there's only one thing that can cure that, and that's a spiritual cure for those things that beleaguer us in the material world. And this was King's Essence. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, you're going to hear from King more from this great speech and another. You'll also hear from a young Malcolm X. Because these two great men were competing for the soul of the nation. One a Christian voice of tolerance and love, and the other a radical Islamic voice of hate and anger, and in the end, war. This is Lee Habib and more with the story of the Reverend Martin Luther King here on Our American Stories. Can't you see that I'm 
At the end of a storm Is a golden sky And the sweet silver song Of a lark Walk This is Lee Habib, Elvis' love of gospel. Well, watch the documentary on it. comes on PBS now and then. After his concerts, he'd go downstairs with his guys, go around a piano and play, as he called it, the music he really loved. By the way, he always performed it in public, too. And we're celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and the universal appeal of his Christian faith. Well, we were just commenting during the break that, my goodness, it was so beautiful and so, so inspiring that young white Jewish kids from the north marched down in the south with them, and some, it cost them their lives. But Martin's faith inspired that kind of courage in people, even people who didn't believe as he believed. And for the hour, we're going to talk about how the media just doesn't bring so much of Reverend King's faith to light, and that's what we're doing here, because, my goodness, it animated everything he did. And so we're covering his famous knock at midnight speech, which everyone should listen to and hear. It's one of the great sermons, I think, of all time, and one of the great pieces of theological thinking. So toward the middle of the speech, we had just heard King talk about the limits of psychology, and this is where God has to come in. King then goes on to condemn moral relativism. Midnight is a time when all moral values lose their distinctiveness. So in our world today, for so many people, there's nothing absolutely right, nothing absolutely wrong. Nobody is concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments in so many instances. They are not important. Everybody is busy trying to obey the Eleventh Commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. (laughs) This tragic moral laxity, this tendency to be caught up in the chains of conformity, is destroying the soul of our nation. So why don't the media showcase this dimension of King, you might be wondering? Or this clip, we found it, they can't? Well, after all, his commitment to equality and his commitment to social justice were driven by the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Why don't we see or hear the video clips of his religious speeches, even though they are easy to find? Thanks to YouTube. And that's where we found this one. You don't think producers at ABC, CBS, and NBC News could find this? We know why. Because secular liberals love to secularize the sacred. They love to remove King's source of inspiration, his love for God, and reduce it to something more earthly, such as his desire for social justice. But whose justice is the question? His own, the government's, the Supreme Court's? No. Always it was God's. But don't trust me on this one. In what may be the most beautiful document written in the 20th century, 
Letter from a Birmingham Jail. King identified his source of inspiration. And we had somebody do a dramatic reading of this, because I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the 20th century. Pick it up and read it sometime. But take a listen to our guy do a reading from this remarkable pamphlet. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. King was in jail when he wrote that because he believed that the law of man had created segregation, and that law was unjust. In jail, he had addressed why, as a man of God, he felt compelled to break the law to change it. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. So here was King imposing his view of morality through his faith onto the legislative body. Today you would hear never-ending cries of separation of church and state. What a stupid and silly and narrow version of what that all means. King spoke with great clarity in this essay. He was fearless, he was faithful, and that's what made him so dangerous, not only to segregationists, but to racists everywhere. And that's why, by the way, totalitarians always get rid of God first. King also invoked God's mercy in his speeches, and nonviolence was always his methodology. Not everyone agreed, though, with King's approach back in the early 1960s. A young Muslim named Malcolm X had a different vision for black America. Malcolm X was a member of the Nation of Islam and a follower of its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Like King, Malcolm X was a brilliant orator, but he had little tolerance for King's Christian emphasis of nonviolence, especially the whole part about loving our enemies and the whole part about loving the same white people who had mistreated so many black people in our country. Indeed, Malcolm X thought King was weak and his message feeble. On more than one occasion, he publicly accused King of being an Uncle Tom, a tool of the white establishment. In Malcolm X's message to the grassroots in Detroit in 1963, he described the role of this Uncle Tom. The same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms, 20th century Uncle Toms, to keep you and me in check, keep us under control. Keep us passive and peaceful in nonviolence. That's Tom making you nonviolent. And Tom was Reverend King. This was a direct attack. Malcolm X wasn't just attacking King, though. He was mocking him. In the same Detroit speech, he decried King's Christian nonviolence. Our revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you sitting around here like a knot on the wall saying, I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. No, you need a revolution. Two competing visions, folks. One, Christian love. Another, well, let's face it. This was the Nation of Islam's hate creed. Malcolm X thought all of the hymns, all the prayers, all the hand-holding, all that churchiness, it was just plain silly. Whoever heard of a revolution where they lock arms, 
singing, we shall overcome. Just tell me you don't do that in a revolution. You don't do any singing, you're too busy swinging. Leadership matters, folks. Philosophy matters. So imagine being a young black man in the 1960s and hearing these two appeals. This was the fight. By the way, no one's doing this story today here on Martin Luther King's Day. Nobody's doing this. So thanks for listening. Thanks to my great team for pulling this all together. Luckily for America, King's Christian impulse prevailed. Now, you won't hear any of this on TV or the radio anytime today or this week. The media will simply ignore all this yucky, messy God talk and all the icky Jesus talk. And you won't hear the secular left invoke the separation of church and state when it comes to King's legacy. You will never hear the secular left complain that King used the power of his pulpit and the power of his faith to change the culture and indeed change the law. When many of us wonder as we approach the national holiday in his honor is this, what would King have to say about our current problems? What would he have to say about fatherlessness in the African-American community? Heck, in our whole country. What would he have to say about crime, drug abuse, the culture? What would he have to say about abortion? These are things to think about. And again, you heard what he was up against. It wasn't just the white folks going after him and the segregationists. It was black folks competing for the soul of African Americans across this country, Malcolm X in particular. We know what he would have said about the economy, by the way. King was a social justice liberal, and he cared passionately about the poor. When we come back, we're going to spend a little time talking about that and what Christians are implored to do by God with their money. And the question is, do we give it to the government to redistribute, or do we give it ourselves, give it to our churches and the churches redistribute that money? A big question, a big philosophical question we Christians grapple with every day. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories for the hour. Martin Luther King, the secularization of the sacred, and that's Reverend King. We will not call him Dr. King this hour. This is Lee Habib. 
And you're listening to Johnny Cash singing the most recorded song in world history. I love this song when I was an atheist, and I love this song as a Christian. Because the message is just so damn stirring and beautiful. We're talking about the life of Martin Luther King, and that's Reverend King for the hour, not doctor. And again, he had a doctorate in divinity studies. So this man lived for the Bible, and the Bible was the source of his inspiration. It was the source of his courage. And without the Bible, there is no Martin Luther King. And the media is not telling you that, and they don't want to tell you that, and that's why we are. And we were talking about that social justice part of Dr. King, and how not all Americans, and particularly not all Christians, see eye to eye on how best to deal with the vexing issues of poverty. But I think time has taught us a lot, and it would have been fascinating to hear and see what Dr. King would think about the trillions we've spent and the way we've spent it to help poor people. And whether it's actually helped or perhaps hurt. Because it separated the church from the giving. It sent it to a bureaucrat, and the bureaucrat gave it. I think the biggest question would be, what would King have learned from European socialism and its effect on churches throughout that continent? You know, Dennis Prager, one of, uh, one of the great sources of wisdom for me and one of my mentors once said something fabulous, and he's Jewish, but we see so eye to eye on almost everything. And he said, the bigger the government, the smaller the church and the smaller the synagogue. Would King see the folly of the great society or, like so many modern progressives, would he double down on the commitment to bigger government and redistributionist policies? I'm not here to give you the answers. Just answer a couple, ask a couple of questions. Whatever your opinions on the matter... Say this about Reverend King. He cared deeply for the poor. He was there. He showed up. He was in the streets fighting for the poor every day until his last. And let's talk about that last day. On April 3rd, 1968, and we're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, not far from Memphis, an hour's drive. The night before his assassination, King gave a speech at the Mason Temple in Memphis then the Church of God headquarters. He was there to support black sanitation workers who had been on strike since March 12th for higher wages and better treatment. In one one incident that spurred the strike, black street repairmen received pay for two hours when they were sent home because of bad weather, but white employees received a full day's pay. In a speech entitled, I've Been to the Mountaintop, that night before he died, He made at least a dozen references to the Bible, and toward the end he spoke of the end of his own life, as if he knew it may be ending shortly. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. Imagine that. Like anybody, he said, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I am not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. The audience roared, as you heard. They could not know that their hero would be gunned down the very next day at the Lorraine Hotel in downtown Memphis. And though King had a sense of foreboding, he was not despondent because he knew he was doing the Lord's work. Here were the final words of his very final public speech. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You know, I'd heard Bono in an interview talk about that speech. And then he really started to dig into King's work. And out of it came, as you heard in the last hour, his greatest song, In the Name of Love, which he wrote not only for Dr. King, but it started to reconnect Bono to God, too. As a young boy growing up in Ireland, he had seen Protestants and Catholics kill each other. And he just didn't get it. And he ran away from faith. And the rest of his life, think about the music. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, the streets with no name. What is every single song he's writing about? God and his struggle to get back to him. So listen carefully to the stories of Martin Luther King this week, folks. Listen very carefully. The man who so loved God, who so feared God's judgment, will be stripped of that animating spirit by a fiercely secular media. But it was God and King's desire to serve him that changed this country forever. No amount of revisionist history by anybody, can change that. That's what drives totalitarians crazy and secularists. They believe no God shall become before theirs, even if his name is the state. And that's what really drives liberals crazy about Jesus Christ's followers. He, his followers believe he is the answer to their problems, not the government. As King said, Jesus lives, Jesus saves. As King said that night in Memphis, a few hours before his death. We are going on. We need all of you. You know what's beautiful to me? It's to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher. Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos who said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. Indeed. And by the way, you could substitute preacher for rabbi. And as anyone who involved in the Jewish faith knows the importance of a rabbi in the, not just the synagogue but in the town is paramount and always the rabbi is the person you run to to seek for, seek for and, and receive wisdom this is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories 
And for the hour, the life of Martin Luther King, this day in history also brought to you by our friends at Hillsdale College. And my goodness, you want to learn about the American canon, the Western canon, everything from Plato and Aristotle to the Bible to the Founders' Vision, Locke, Montesquieu, straight up to current events. There's no better college in America to send your boy or girl. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Their online courses are the best. Their C.S. Lewis course was amazing. And of course, Economics 101, you just can't miss it. They're all available. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. When we come back, more on the Reverend Martin Luther King on this day in history and on the day we celebrate the life of Dr. King as a nation. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, the life of Reverend Martin Luther King being celebrated here. And you were listening to Alicia Keys, one of the great young artists, young R&B artists, going back to her gospel roots and singing one of her favorite songs. And we play that today in honor of King wanted now to dig into a, another speech, this one a sermon, in a church in Chicago on the 17th of August, 1967. Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. I wanted to play it because what I think what you're going to find interesting is the audio we could find and the audio we couldn't. We searched everywhere, and there were remarkable parts of this speech that were redacted. And so you're going to hear the parts that we could find, and I'm going to read you the rest and leave it to you to think about why we couldn't find the audio on this. So let's start with the beginning of this sermon. And again, that's why we're here today, to honor Dr. King with words from him you are not hearing anywhere else in this country. Anywhere. Let's start. I want to share with you a dramatic little story from the gospel as recorded by St. Luke. It is the story of a man who by all standards of measurement would be considered a highly successful man. Yet Jesus called him a fool. If you will read that parable, you will discover that the central 
character in the drama is a certain rich man. This man was so rich that his farm yielded tremendous crops. In fact, the crops were so great that he didn't know what to do. And it occurred to him that he had only one alternative, and that was to build some new and bigger bonds so he could store all of his crops. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That brother thought that was the end of life. So he was telling the story of this rich man who thought just eat, drink, and be merry. More. That's the end of life. A story that still resonates, don't you think? But let me now read what we couldn't find. Now, Jesus didn't call the man a fool because he made money in a dishonest fashion. There is nothing in that parable to indicate that this man was dishonest and then he made his money through conniving or exploitation. In fact, it seems to reveal that he had a medium of humanity and that he was a very industrious man. He was a thrifty man, apparently a very hard worker. So Jesus didn't call him a fool because he got his money through dishonest means. And there is nothing here to indicate that Jesus called this man a fool because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against wealth. It's true that one day a rich young ruler came to him raising some questions about eternal life, and Jesus said to him, sell all. But in that case, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. Why was that cut? Again, I'll leave that to you to think about and ponder. The next clip from this speech. Take a listen. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and wasn't concerned about it. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and was concerned about it. Let me tell you the part we couldn't find. It's the part that preceded that line. Somehow in life, we must know that we must seek first the kingdom of God. And then all of those other things, clothes, houses, cars, will be added unto us. But the problem is all too many people fail to put first things first. They don't keep a sharp line of demarcation between the things of life and the ends of life. And so this man was a fool because he allowed the means by which he lived to outdistance the ends for which he lived. He was a fool because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. This man was a fool because he allowed his technology to outdistance his theology. This man was a fool because he allowed his mentality to outrun his morality. Somehow he became so involved in the means by which he lived that he couldn't deal with the way to eternal matters. Stripped. Couldn't find it. Again, you think about why. 
Let's play another part of this sermon. Finally, this man was a fool because he failed to realize his dependence on God. Do you know that man talked like he regulated the seasons? That man talked like he gave the rain to grapple with the fertility of the soil. That man talked like he provided the dew. He was a fool because he ended up acting like he was the creator instead of a creature. This man-centered foolishness is still alive today. And then again, this part was redacted. In fact, he said, it has gotten to the point today that some are even saying that God is dead. The thing that bothers me about it is that they didn't give me full information because at least I would have wanted to attend God's funeral. And today I want to ask, who was the coroner that pronounced him dead? I want to raise a question. How long had he been sick? I want to know whether he'd had a heart attack or died of chronic cancer. These questions haven't been answered for me, and I am going on believing and knowing that God is alive. You see, as long as love is around, God is alive. As long as justice is around, God is alive. There are certain conceptions of God that needed to die, but not God. You see, God is the supreme noun of life. He's not an adjective. He is the supreme subject of life. He's not a verb. He's the supreme independent clause. He's not a dependent clause. Everything else is dependent on him. But he is dependent on nothing. My goodness. This is the stuff we should all be talking about every day. Christian or not. Jew or Gentile. And so as we close out this hour, I want to play a little bit and the end of Martin Luther King's great speech to the nation and his march on Washington. Now you'll come to appreciate this very secular speech coming from this man of faith. And you'll come now to listen to it knowing from whom it came and from where it came, from God. Martin Luther King, simply a vassal, a pathway. He knew it, now you know it from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And my goodness, it can make you cry knowing now what we know about the man, knowing now what we know about him knowing that he was more than likely not going to make it to the age of 40. And he didn't, but he still lives with us. 
on this day in history and on the day that we're honoring the Reverend Martin Luther King, we were happy to bring you his own words from his own sermons and the source of everything. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. has been found what's to come has already been so i'll tell you that i'm pressing on This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Stephen Ambrose was one of America's leading biographers and historians. His bestsellers chronicle our nation's critical battles and achievements, from his war works D-Day and Band of Brothers, to Undaunted Courage. Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the opening of the American West. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his epic storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories thanks to those who run his estate. Climb aboard, here's Stephen Ambrose to tell us the story from his bestseller, Nothing Like It in the World, The Men Who Built the Transcontinental Railroad. My editor, Alice May, you said when I completed my last book, he said, you got to do the Pacific Railway. How did they build it? And I said, oh, Alice, I don't want to do that. Uh, I, I, these guys were robber barons. They went out and stole the country blind. And then they used all their ill-gotten gains to get a grip on American politics, which they held on to until the first the populists and then the progressive parties were formed. And I don't want to deal with these robber barons. And she said, you do... You, so I, I read for six months, and I learned that I had been badly wrong. That far from being villains, these guys are heroes. And I'm talking about the big four. I'm talking about Dr. Ant. I'm talking about all the others that were at the top and all of the men who built the track. So that was how I got started on This book opens with Abraham Lincoln. And somebody asked me about that a couple of days ago. I said, how could you possibly open with Abraham Lincoln? I said, listen, I'm a writer. You got an opportunity to open your story with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but in, in this story, uh, Lincoln was a railroad lawyer before he went into full-time politics. He was involved in the biggest case of all with the Rock Island when they had built a bridge over the Mississippi River and a steamboat crashed into one of the pilings and it burned up and the steamboat company sued the railroad. You can't put those bridges over this river. Our steamboats are going to run into them. Lincoln defended the Rock Island. And, and one thing you do is say it was the pilot's fault. 
he crashed into the piling, but second, he said, the railroads have as much right to go east and west as your steamships have to go north and south. And that principle was accepted by the Illinois Supreme Court, and that's what made railroading in America. Lincoln uh, got written into the 1860 Republican platform, support for the building of a transcontinental railroad. And that was done. And he was the promoter of the 1862 bill, and then he promoted the 1864 revision, which gave even more subsidies uh, to the railroad, because he wanted to see that railroad built, and he wanted it seen fast. Lincoln was in Council Bluffs, Iowa. It was 1859. And the man he was staying with, his name was Pusey, pointed to a man on the, down the way on the veranda of the hotel, and he said, that's Grenville Dodge. He was 28 years old, Dodge was. And Pusey said to Lincoln, he knows more about railroads than any two men in the country. And that snapped Lincoln's head around. Let's go meet, he said. And you know, those great big long legs of his, he began striding down, and he stuck out that long arm, and he said, Dodge, what's the best route for the Pacific Railroad? Like that, Dodd said, right here, Mr. President, straight out from Omaha, right up the Platte River Valley. Why do you think so, Lincoln asked. And Dodd told him why he thought so. And from that moment on, Lincoln was fully committed to what became the first transcontinental railroad. Next to winning the Civil War and abolishing slavery, building the first transcontinental railroad from Omaha, Nebraska to Sacramento, California, was the greatest achievement of the American people in the 19th century. Not until the completion of the Panama Canal in the early 20th century was it rivaled as an engineering feat. The railroad took brains, muscle, and sweat in quantities and scope never before put into a single project. It could not have been done without a representative democratic political system without skilled and ambitious engineers, without bosses and foremen who had learned how to organize and lead men in the Civil War, without free labor, without hardworking laborers who had learned how to take orders in the war, without those who came over to America in the thousands from China seeking a fortune, without laborers speaking many languages and coming to America from every inhabited continent. Without the trees and iron available in America, without capitalists willing to take high risk for great profit, without men willing to challenge all at every level in order to win all. Most of all, it could not have been done without teamwork. The United States was less than 100 years old when the Civil War was won, slavery abolished, and the first transcontinental railroad built. Not until nearly 20 years later did the Canadian Pacific span the Dominion. It was a quarter of a century after the completion of the railroad, the American road, that the Russians got started in the Trans-Siberian Railway. And the Russians used more than 200,000 Chinese to do it. As compared to the American employment of 10,000 or so Chinese. In addition, the Russians had hundreds of thousands of convicts working on the line as slave laborers. Even at that, it was not until 32 years after the American achievement that the Russians finished. And they did it as a government enterprise at a much higher cost with a road that was in every way inferior. The Americans did it first. And they did it even though the United States was the youngest of countries. It had proclaimed its independence in 1776 
won its independence in 1783, bought the Louisiana Purchase, through which much of the Union Pacific ran, in 1803, added California and Nevada and Utah to the Union in 1848, through which the Central Pacific ran, and completed the linking of the continent in 1869, thus ensuring an empire of liberty running from sea to shining sea. And more of Stephen Ambrose's remarkable storytelling on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and Stephen Ambrose telling the story of the men who built the Transcontinental Railroad and his terrific book, Nothing Like It in the World. Go to Amazon.com. And by the way, while you're there, pick up all of Stephen Ambrose's books. Read them with the family. There is no better storytelling about our great country than Stephen Ambrose. Let's continue with the story. One of the most feared stretches ran three miles along the precipitous gorge of the North Fork of the American River, nicknamed Cape Horn. The slope was at an angle of 75 degrees, and the river was 1,200 to 2,200 feet below the line of the railroad. There were no trails, not even a goat path. The grade would not be bored through a tunnel, but rather built on the side of the mountain which required blasting and rock cuts on the sheer cliffs. The mountain needed to be sculpted because the railroad would be curved around the mountain. The curves that hugged the monolith were either upgrade or occasionally down. Men had to be lowered in a bosun's chair from above to place the black powder. First of all, to drill a hole for it, then to place the black powder, fix and light the fuses, and then yell to the man above to haul us up with regard to Cape Horn, Van Nostrand's Engineering Magazine, the premier magazine for engineers of the day, said in 1870, good engineers consider this undertaking preposterous. One day in the summer of 1865, a Chinese foreman went up to Strobridge, who was the foreman for the Central Pacific. The Chinese nodded and then waited for permission to speak. When it was granted, he said that men of China are skilled at work like this. Our ancestors built fortresses in the Angsty Gorges. Would you permit Chinese crews to work on Cape Horn? If so, could reeds be sent up from San Francisco so we can weave them into baskets? Strobridge would try anything. The reeds came on. At night, the Chinese wove baskets similar to the ones their ancestors had used. The baskets were round, waist-high, four eyelets at the top, painted with symbols. Ropes ran from the eyelets to a central cable. The Chinese went to work. They needed 
little or no instruction in handling black powder, which was a Chinese invention. And they went to work with a hauling crew at the top. Hundreds of barrels of black powder were ignited daily to form a ledge on which a roadbed could be laid. Some of the men were lost in accidents. We don't know how many. The CP didn't keep a record. The Chinese working men, hanging in their baskets, had to bore the holes with their small hand drills, then tamp in the explosives, set and light the fuse, and holler to be pulled out of the way. They used a huge amount of power that was shipped to them from Sacramento. The Chinese made the roadbed and laid the track around Cape Horn. Though this took until the spring of 1866, a year, it was not as time-consuming or difficult as had been feared. Still, it remains one of the best known of all the laborers on the Central Pacific. Mainly because, unlike the work in the tunnel, it makes for a spectacular diorama. As well it should. Hanging from those baskets, drilling holes in the cliff, putting in the powder, placing the fuse, and getting hauled up was a spectacular piece of work. The white laborers couldn't do it. The Chinese could. If not as a matter of course, then quickly. And, at least they made it look this way, easily. <coughs> Young Lewis Clement did the surveying and then took charge of overseeing the railroad engineering at Cape Horn. What Clement planned and the Chinese made became one of the grandest sights to be seen along the entire Central Pacific Line. Trains would halt there so tourists could get out from their cars to gasp and gape at the gorge and at the grade. In the fall of 1865, the CP went to work on its tunnels. Now, you, you need to know that California has on its eastern side the Sierra Nevada. That is granite, and it goes up very high, and you get more snow on the Sierra Nevada than you do any place else in the United States, save only Alaska. And the tunnels had to be drilled through this granite. And in the fall of 1865, the CP went to work on these tunnels. Six of the 13 that would have to blast out before getting to the east slope were clustered in a small stretch of two miles at the top of the long climb. The biggest, number six, right at the summit, within a few hundred feet of Donner Pass, with Donner Lake right down below it, was 1,659 feet long and as much as 124 feet beneath the surface. Of all the back-breaking labor that went into the building of the CP and the UP, of all the dangers inherent in the work, this was the worst. The drills lost their edges to the granite and had to be replaced frequently. One Chinese worker would hold that drill up and then there were two men behind him with sledgehammers, and the other guy, and the other guy, and that went on for eight hours. <clears throat> there was room for only one gang at a time, three men to a gang. The drills lost their edge to the granite and had to be replaced frequently. The CP soon learned to order his drills in 100-ton lots. The man holding the drill had to be steady or he would get hit by the sledgehammer. The man swinging the hammer had to have muscles like steel. When a hole was at last big enough for the black powder to be packed in, 
The crew would fill it, set a fuse, yell as loud as they could while running out of the range of the blast, and they would hope. Sometimes the fuse worked. Sometimes it didn't. Often the workers had put in too much powder, and most of it blew toward them, harmlessly as far as the granite was concerned, but at great danger to the Chinese. Clement's assistant, Henry Root, explained that more powder was used by the rock foreman than was economical for the simple reason that the workers were told that time, not money, was of the essence. At Summit Tunnel alone, 300 kegs of blasting powder a day went up. That's more than went up in a day in the Civil War. Progress was incredibly slow with men working round the clock. This is 24 hours a day. Eight hours, eight hours, and eight hours. Between six and 12 inches was a normal 24-hour day of how much they gained. Charlie Crocker, in charge, gave orders to establish permanent work camps on each side of the summit to facilitate the round-the-clock drilling, blasting, scraping, shoveling, and hauling by the Chinese. Charlie figured there was no night or day within a tunnel. The men worked in groups of 20 or so because only a handful could work at any one time. They ate healthy, well-cooked and tasty food. Unlike the white workers <coughs> on the Union Pacific, the Central Pacific provided, as did the Union Pacific, the Americans with boiled beef and potatoes, and that's all they wanted, and some salt. Uh, the Chinese demanded and got an astonishing variety. Oysters, cuttlefish, finfish, abalone meat, oriental fruits, and scores of vegetables, including bamboo sprouts, seaweed, and mushrooms. Each of these foods came dried, purchased from one of the Chinese merchants in San Francisco. Further, the Chinese ate rice, salted cabbage, vermiculi, bacon, and sweet crackers. Very occasionally they had fresh meat, pork being a prime favorite along with chicken. That food helped keep the Chinese healthy. The water they drank was even more important. The Americans drank from the streams and lakes and many of them got diarrhea, dysentery, and other illnesses. The Chinese drank only tepid tea. The water had been boiled first and was brought to them by youngsters who carried two pails on a sturdy pole across their shoulders, and they would dip in and drink their tea. What remarkable storytelling, painting word pictures like no one else can. More black powder used in a day of construction of the Transcontinental Railroad than used in a day of battle in the Civil War. And they ordered drills in 100-ton lots. And by the way, America could do this because we could produce those drills in 100-ton lots. And what a great story about, well, immigration in the end. The white laborers couldn't do it, Ambrose said, referring to building these railroads. <laughs> the Chinese workers could. And by the way, it's always been our American advantage. Disparate cultures, disparate knowledge, organized around a common set of governing values. When we come back, more of this remarkable story. Stephen Ambrose, nothing like it in the world, the men who built the Transcontinental Railroad. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories. And let's return to Stephen Ambrose telling the story of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. According to contemporaries, the white worker had a hydrophobia, which induced him to avoid any contact with water. In contrast, the Chinese are accustomed to daily evolutions of their entire person. The Chinese were ideal workers. Cheap. Three dollars a day. They did as they were told. Made a quick study and after something was shown or explained to them, did it skillfully. Few, if any, strikes. The same for complaints. They did what no one else was willing or able to do. When Charlie Crocker first proposed to Strawberry, let's use Chinese, because they were getting white workers who would sign up and then get a ride up to the top of the Sierra Nevada and then desert, because they, they just wanted a free ride out to the gold fields. The Chinese didn't, and, and didn't do it that way, and Crocker said to Strawberry, let's try Chinese, and Strawberry said, you're crazy. They're only that high, and they only weigh 110 pounds, they can't possibly do this work. And Crocker said, they built the Great Wall of China, didn't they? <laughs> And Strawberry soon became one of their great advocates. <coughs> now to the men who made the Union Pacific, who were primarily Irishmen, uh, although the myth has it it was exclusively, and it wasn't. There were German descendants, and there were Scandinavians, and there were Italians, and there were Russian descendants, and there were a, a quite a lot, 500 by my own count, African Americans, newly freed slaves. The whole world worked on the Union Pacific. But the Irishmen made up maybe 50%. Another factor here is they were almost all of them veterans. They were 18 or 19 or 20 or 21 years old. They had been in the Civil War, whether in the Confederate Army or the Union Army. You look at pictures of them, very famous pictures, and you're going to see a lot of gray coats and a lot of blue coats. And these were kids who the war was over and I ain't going to go back to Indiana and plow. I'm, I'm not going to go back to Ohio and get behind a horse and hold that plow all day long, falling behind that. I want something more exciting in my life. I want something that is significant. I want to be a part of something big. In addition, they had caught that most American of all diseases, the wanderlust. They wanted to see new country. And they signed on with the Union Pacific to go to work, to build something that they knew and they did they could bring their grandchildren to and say I helped build that and, and, and General Dodge who he wasn't general anymore he, he had been in the Civil War but he was uh, superintendent and head of construction and the chief engineer for the Union Pacific he said it was the best organized best equipped and best disciplined workforce I have ever seen and Dodge built a lot of railroads and they were being attacked by Indians pretty much constantly when they were in Nebraska and more occasionally, but still fairly often when they were in Wyoming. And the Indians had a number of objections to the building of this road. First of all, it was going through their land. Nobody had asked them and nobody had ever paid them. And, and second, they knew it was bringing civilization. And that meant, first of all, army post. And that meant that they could no longer outrun the army. That a regiment could get on a train and go all the way out to Cheyenne or go on to Rollins or wherever in Wyoming and disembark from the train and boom, 
They could hit the Indians just like that. And the Indians were aware of that. They were also aware that these settlements were going to come. And that spelled a doom for the Indian way of life. And most of all, the Indians were aware Buffalo would not cross the track. So the laying of the track across the Great Plains meant you're splitting the buffalo herd in half. So they attacked often and sometimes with some effect and sometimes with great effect because they would uh, pry up the track in the middle of the night and the locomotive would come through and the engineer wouldn't see this in the dark and whoof, over it went. And then the Indians would attack and they would take everything they could out of the cars and especially if they could find some whiskey and that became very notorious at Julesburg in Colorado. Now, one of the ways that the railroad got control over that was they learned to hang lanterns on the front of the locomotives and that provided a spotlight. So you could at least see ahead and see if the track had been torn up or not. But Dodge had all of these young men, 10,000 of them, that were working for the Union Pacific. They were all armed. And their foremen had all been officers in the Civil War. And they would see a hostile Indian force up on the ridge, getting ready to come down on them, and boom, like that. Those guys would switch from being railway workers to being soldiers and they would grab their rifles and they would line up and they would repel these Indian attacks. How hard they worked is an astonishment to us at the beginning of the 21st century. Except for some of the cooks and bakers, there was not a fat man among them. Their hands were tough enough for any job. One never sees gloves in the photographs. The jobs included pickaxe handling, shoveling, wielding sledgehammers, picking up iron rails, and using other equipment that required hands like iron. Their waists were generally thin, but oh, those shoulders, those arms, those legs. Nebraska can be hotter than hell, colder than the South Pole. They kept on working. They didn't whine, they didn't complain, they didn't quit, they just kept working. They had taken on a job that is accurately described as back-breaking. It was, in addition, a job that experts said could not be done in the 10 years it had been allotted. If ever. A day's routine was something like this. In the morning, the men were up at first light. After their toilet and washing their faces and hands in a tin basin, they had a hearty breakfast and then went to work. At noon time, it was called and they had an hour for a heavy dinner that included pitchers of steaming coffee, pans of beef soup, platters heaped with boiled beef, potatoes, sometimes condensed milk diluted with water. The men were there to eat. There was little conversation. They made a business of it. Afterward, they sat around their bunks smoking, sewing on buttons, or taking a little nap, then back to work with the bosses cursing and exhorting them to overcome their noontime lassitude. Time was called again an hour before dark to allow some rest. The evening meal was more leisurely. Then to the bunkhouses for card games, a smoke, lots of talk, railroad talk. It was said to consist entirely of whiskey, women, higher wages, shorter hours. Sometimes the men protested about being cheated. 
When they did, they were shot. <laughs> One a day or more. There was no law. And then a song such as, Poor Patty, He Works on the Railroad, or The Great Pacific Railway for California Hail. Then to bed. The whole to be repeated the next day, and the next, and the next. And what storytelling by the great Stephen Ambrose, and we thank his estate for allowing us to use his voice and to keep his work alive at a time when fewer and fewer people know the story of this great country. Hearing Stephen Ambrose tell these stories, well, it's more than a breath of fresh air. It's life itself. It's sustenance. And by the way, this story of the Union Pacific, of the Irish, 50% of the Irish dominated this and these crews, and almost all were vets, as he pointed out. They didn't want to go back to the farm, Ambrose pointed out, after the war, and some fought for the North and some fought for the South. They wanted to be a part of something big. They wanted to see a new country built. And they also wanted to be able to bring their grandchildren to the finished product and say, I helped build that. And then again, let's never forget the wanderlust, just wanting to get out and see someplace new, which is still the fundamental part of this great country. By the way, there's a story to tell about the Sandhogs, and those are the Irish who built all the tunnels in New York City, built the subways, and by the way, other immigrants too, but the Irish dominated this space. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the building of the transcontinental railroads, and Stephen Ambrose, here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories. Let's pick up where Stephen Ambrose last left off. During the spring of 1866, Jack Caseman, in charge of one of the construction crews, offered each man a pound of fresh tobacco for every day that they laid more than two miles of track. This was done. Dan Casement went out in the early summer to offer time and a half pay to ensure that the UP reached the 100th meridian before any other line. He also offered double wages for any four-mile workdays. Henry Morton Stanley, who was one of the many reporters who was out there covering this, and Henry Morton Stanley is a reporter who found Dr. Liv Dr. Livingston, I presume. Um, and he was reporting for two American papers. He was impressed by the results. The workers, he said, display an astonishing amount of enthusiasm for their jobs. <clears throat> the workers on the CP, from the bosses down, believed there was more rain and snow in the winter of 1865-66 than had ever before been seen in California. The winter of 1866-67 was much worse. The snow came early and stayed late. There were 44 separate storms. Some of them deposited 10 feet of snow, some deposited more. At the summit, the pack averaged 18 feet on the level. More, fall, more snow falls on the Sierra Nevada than any place else in the 48 states. Only Alaska gets more snow than the Sierra Nevada. <clears throat> Strawbridge put hundreds of the Chinese to work doing nothing but shoveling the snow away to keep open a cart trail to the tunnel opening. If it had not been for the race with the UP, the CP would have closed down that winter. 
but the fear of losing all Utah and Nevada to their rival drove them on. The Chinese laborers dug snow tunnels from 50 to 500 feet long to get to the granite tunnels. And they lived in these igloos is what they were. And these Chinese for sometimes as long as six months never once saw the sky. Some of these uh, tunnels were large enough for a team of horses to walk through. Windows were dug out of the snow walls to dump refuse and let in a little bit of light. Also chimneys and air shafts. But for the most part, the Chinese worked, ate, drank their tea, gambled, smoked opium, which they did on Sundays. They got Sundays off and they smoked opium. <coughs> they didn't get themselves intoxicated with it or act silly or anything like that. They just wanted to relax on that day off. So they smoked their opium and slept in the remarkable labyrinth that they were building under the snow. This was cruel work, dangerous and claustrophobic. Still they pressed on, drilling the holes in the granite, placing the black powder and then the fuse, lighting the fuse, getting out of the way, then going back in to clear out the broken granite. Of all the things done by the first transcontinental railroad, Nothing exceeded the cuts in time and cost it made for people traveling across the continent. Before the Mexican War, during the gold rush that started in 1848 through the 1850s and, and until after the Civil War ended in 1865, it took a person half a year and might cost well over $1,000 to go from New York to San Francisco. They either went overland in the covered wagons with the oxen drawing them, or they sailed down to Panama, got across Panama, very great peril, the fear of getting tropical diseases, and then hoped to hell they could find a steamer going north to take them up to California, or they went all the way around South America and came back up again. And then that, it's months and big money, but less than a week after the pounding of the Golden Spike, a man or woman could go from New York to San Francisco in seven days. That included stops. So fast they used to say, you don't even have time to take a bath. <laughs> and the cost to go from New York to San Francisco as listed in the summer of 1869 was $150 for first class, $70 for immigrant. By June 1870, that was down to $100 for first class, 65 for immigrant class. This was at a time when a common laborer was making about $100 a month. And first class meant a Pullman sleeping car. The immigrants sat on a bench. Freight rates by train were incredibly less than for ox or horse-drawn wagons or for sailboats or steamers. Mail that once cost dollars per ounce and took forever, now cost pennies. And got from Chicago to California in a few days. The telegraph, meanwhile, which was built beside the track, as was stipulated in the 1862 Pacific Railway Act, and which, just pause for a minute and talk about the telegraph, we like to think we live in the age of the greatest change ever. My parents thought we lived through the biggest change. We lived through the Depression, and then we went through the Second World War, and we defeated Hitler, and we defeated Tojo, and we were there when the atomic bomb came about, and we went through the biggest change. And my grandparents, they felt we went through the biggest change. We were there when Henry Ford brought out the automobile. We were there when the Wright brothers flew for the first time. 
obviously our generation. You know who went through the biggest change? The generation that lived between 1850 and 1870. They won the Civil War, they abolished slavery, and they built the Transcontinental Railroad. And in the building of that railroad, they brought in the telegraph. We think we are in instant communication today. The telegraph puts you in instant communication. You could get a message from Chicago to San Francisco, or from Los Angeles to New York, or wherever, like that. That's what made the National Stock Exchange possible. And so much else in American business that came about because of that telegraph. So the telegraph, meanwhile, could move ideas, thoughts, statistics, any words or numbers that could be put on paper from one place to another, from Europe or England or New York to San Francisco or anywhere else that had a telegraph station instantly. The Pullman Company published a weekly newspaper called the Transcontinental for its passengers. On May 30, 1870, that's almost exactly one year after the Golden Spike, the paper had this item. It was a cheering incident in our smoking car last evening when one of our party who had telegraphed to Boston to learn if his wife was well, received after we had run 47 miles further west, this answer, all well at home, which fact was announced and loud applause followed from all in the car. Just imagine that. It's almost like a telephone. But nobody ever did that before. And now you could find out how your wife was when you're way the hell out past Salt Lake. Together, the Transcontinental Railroad and the Telegraph made modern America possible. Things that could not be imagined before the Civil War now became common. A nationwide stock market, a continent-wide economy in which people, agricultural products, coal and minerals moved wherever someone wanted to send them and did so cheaply and quickly. A continent-wide culture in which mail and popular magazines and books that used to cost dollars per ounce and had taken seemingly forever to get from the east to the west coast now cost pennies and got there in a few days. There's another factor here that I should, have, I should mention and that's time. The railroads changed so much, and one of the things that they changed was time. Before the railroads, nobody carried a watch around. Nobody cared what time it was. And you want to know when it's high noon, you look up in the sky. And when the sun is straight overhead, it's high noon. And now that's going to be different in Chicago than it's going to come later when you get out to Des Moines. And in Des Moines, it's going to come earlier than it's going to come in Omaha, and so on. But if you're going to have, it's only one track, remember, that they laid. If you're going to have trains going in both directions and you don't have the same time in Cheyenne as you do in Omaha, they're going to cry. And so that's where standard time came from. The, the uh, um, railroads demanded standard time and the Congress put in a standard time in 1879. And then we all suddenly became obsessed with time, as we still are. Time's up. Time's wasting. The train is leaving the station. And so on. None of this might have happened if different choices had been made by any of the foregoing groups and individuals. But a choice made is made. It cannot be changed. Things happen as they happened. It's possible to imagine all kinds of different routes across the continent. 
or a better way for the government to help private industry, or maybe to have the government build and own it. But those things didn't happen. And what did take place is grand. So we admire those who did it for what they were and what they accomplished and how much each of us owes them. And what storytelling. And thanks again to the Stephen Ambrose estate for allowing us to use his voice. We're deeply appreciative, as I'm sure you are, the listening audience. And by the way, nothing like it in the world. The Men Who Built the Transcontinental Railroad is a terrific read, as are all of Ambrose's books. And we're going to be doing much more storytelling. Well, actually, we're going to be listening to much more storytelling from the great Stephen Ambrose. And boy, what points he makes. We always think we're living through these great eras of change. But my goodness, 1850 to 1870, we won the Civil War, he reminded us. We freed the slaves. And we created the Transcontinental Railroad and then the Telegraph. And life was never the same. By the way, the way we were able to lower costs on absolutely everything and make things, well, that weren't even available to kings before, available to the common man. And this is the miracle of free enterprise and the miracle of American innovation and crazy ideas. Because in the end, so many of our great inventors, well, everybody just thought they were crazy. Stephen Ambrose telling the story of the Transcontinental Railroad here on Our American Stories.